I've got good news for you today. I've got really good news for you today. You could never be enough or do enough. That's the good news. I've got great news for you today. Jesus is enough. Now, if you don't think that that sounds like good news or great news, then I hope to convince you otherwise by the end of this time. But we are starting a new series. We are interrupting our series on Mark, and we're starting a new series today uh, that will last through this month. You see, uh, about 500 years ago this week, a German monk named Martin Luther uh, nailed 95 theses up onto a door in Wittenberg, unwittingly inciting what we now call the Protestant Reformation. Luther was not attempting to start a Reformation. He was attempting to have a dialogue with fellow monks about uh, the sale of indulgences and things like that. Uh, but, um, but that's not where we ended up. And, and no doubt, no doubt, Luther would disapprove of many of the unintended outcomes and consequences of the Reformation. He would grieve them deeply. He did grieve them. Uh, yet, there are some things about the Reformation, and especially the central idea that animated it, and generated it. The central idea called justification by faith, that's an idea that I think Luther would still hold on to and that he would proclaim all the more vigorously today. You see, Martin Luther was a person who was burdened by this question. How can I find a gracious God? For years, he had struggled under the anxiety of realizing that he did not measure up to the standards of a God who was holy and righteous and sovereign. And he felt burdened by that, an anxious burden. And evidently, it wasn't just him who felt that anxious burden, because the rest of Northern Europe got behind this idea, and were even willing to die for this idea. See, justification by faith was the answer to Luther's question, how can I find a gracious God? Now, today, we might say, okay, but how is that relevant to me? I mean, we're not medieval Catholics who are sitting under the weight of anxiety, biting our fingernails, thinking that God is going to smote us. Haven't we gotten past all this? I'm not sure. And I want to try to convince you today that the doctrine of justification by faith is just as relevant today as it ever has been. As I do that, let me pray for us. 
Loving and liberating Lord, would you free us by your grace, by showing us the work of Jesus and ministering him to us today, making that present for his sake. Amen. Well, Pam and I were moving to Europe, and we had four suitcases. We were not going to ship anything, and so it was very important that those suitcases, they fell under the standard of the 70-pound weight limit. You know what I'm talking about? I think it was 70 pounds at that point that you could have. And so they were stuffed to the brim. We get there to the... um, to the airport. We have our suitcases, all our things. We're getting on. We're going to have this international flight and move to Europe for the unforeseeable future. And we uh, put, the, um, put the suitcases on, and then all of a sudden, they are like a few pounds too heavy. Well, what do you do at that point? Well, I'll tell you what you do at that point. You make a fool of yourself by taking the suitcases off, undoing the suitcases, un- unzipping the suitcases, and then you're like, yeah, I could, I could wear a couple more undershirts today. Yeah. Oh, those hiking boots look a lot heavier than these tennis shoes. I'll put hiking boots on. Oh, you know what? Winter coat. Yeah, why not? I mean, sure, it's September, but planes are cold, right? And so we go in wearing half the bag on ourselves as we go in, and our, our suitcases made it just barely. They met the standard and the, uh, the folks that were working behind the counter said, all right, you can go through. Now, why do I tell that story? I tell that story because I think it gives a good sense of this concept of justification, a concept that's in this passage. The, the, pa- the, the, the concept appears throughout the passage. Look, verse 20 says we are justified in his sight. Verse 24, justified by his grace. Verse 26, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Verse 30, God is the one who will justify. This idea of justification, justify. And to justify is just to deem something, and that's what it means, to deem something right with respect to a standard. To deem something to be righteous. That is, to deem something to be right with respect to the standard. And in that scenario, our suitcases, they were deemed unrighteous. They were not right with respect to the standard of the weight. But then we, we, um, we fix that, right? Uh, we might not have been righteous as far as the social standards of what you're supposed to wear when you walk through the airport, but our luggage was. That's the idea, What I want to do this morning is talk about this idea of righteousness and justification. So I want to look in this passage at our pursuit of righteousness, and I also want to look at God's provision of righteousness. First, our pursuit of righteousness. Now today, when I use the term righteous, and when we think about righteousness, most of us think that this is kind of a religious term. And because it's a religious term, it, it really kind of characterizes people that are stuffy and uptight and uh, maybe kind of killjoys, stick in the muds, not too fun. Um, or it describes surfers who saw some really awesome move on the uh, wave and they said, that was righteous, right? Uh, and what they mean is um, that adhered to whatever uh, surfer standard that there is. 
But that, I think, is the point. That righteous just means to be right with respect to a standard. And we all inevitably live according to standards. Our own and others. Standards are all around us. I mean, think about it. We, we all um, have standards, whether they're like, be kind. We aspire to be kind. Or don't harm another person's body. Or live responsibly. These are all standards. And, and they're not bad in and of themselves. I mean, standards like be hygienic, be responsible, not bad at all. And, and in fact, they're inevitable. Anytime you ask the question, what does it mean? What does human flourishing look like? If you were to answer that question, whatever you answer that question with sets a standard. And then you evaluate yourself and others on the basis of that standard. It's absolutely inevitable. So let's just take a very modern example. What does human flourishing look like? Well, most in our modern Western secular age would say that human flourishing looks like being non-judgmental, inclusive, and tolerant. Okay, but when we say that, we set a standard that people should be, that I should be tolerant and, and inclusive and non-judgmental. But of course, as soon as we set that standard, we ask the question about ourselves and we evaluate ourselves on the basis of standard, which is a judgment, right? Uh, now, most of the time when people say non-judgmental, they don't mean don't judge or they haven't really thought about this too well, but they mean you can't condemn someone. But we're all evaluating each other and ourselves on the basis of standards all the time. Standards are inevitable. I, I mean, think about it. You can't play sports without standards and judgment. You can't have hospitals without standards and judgment. Uh, you can't have school without standards and judgment. Standards and judgment are an intrinsic and inevitable part of the structure of the universe. And Christians believe that this is because God made a world that matters. That God made a world with a certain intention for that world. And that he cares about the world and that the world matters. And it's because God made us in the world with a certain intention for the world and because he values the world and he cares about the world and because the world matters, he evaluates the world on the basis of that intention. That's what Paul is talking about when he says in verse 19 that the whole world is held accountable to God. God evaluates the world he made. He evaluates it on the basis of his standard. What is that standard? Look, Psalm 11.7 puts it well. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And the upright shall behold his face. So the Lord is righteous. He, his character is the standard. He loves righteous deeds. He loves deeds that actually correspond to his character. And the upright, those who are righteous, shall see his face. He accepts. Those are acceptable to him, and he accepts those who are righteous, who, who comply with his loving character. 
See, and we all have this need to be righteous, to be right with respect to the standards. We all want it, and that's not a bad thing. The fact that you want it simply means that you believe that you have the dignity to live a life that, is worth, that matters, that's valuable. That's what that means. And so if you care to live according to a standard, guess what? All you're saying is that you, re- you have the self-respect to say, my life matters. Okay? That's not a problem. The problem is not that we desire righteousness or that we pursue righteousness. The problem is that we're not righteous. The problem is that we don't measure up to the standards, whatever standards they may be. I mean, we aim to be always kind and loving and not to harm others, and yet we don't always, we aren't always kind. We aren't always loving. Sometimes we do harm others. We aim to have a hard work ethic, but sometimes we're lazy. Let's be honest. And we don't get out of bed like we wish we would to help out a child or a spouse or a friend. We, we aim to meet these standards. We aim to take care of the environment. But sometimes recycling is just annoying. And other times we don't even know if recycling is good or bad for the environment. You see, we aim for these things and yet we fail to meet these things. We aim to measure up and yet we don't measure up. And so that, then what happens is, is simply this. The standard, instead of showing us this, this picture of human flourishing, when we hear the standard and we, when we see the standard, instead of saying, that's what human flourishing looks like, what we hear is, you don't measure up. When we see the standard, we realize we don't measure up to the standard, and then the standard points out our own inadequacy. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified, will be deemed right with respect to the standard in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, since through the law comes knowledge that we don't measure up, that's what sin is. Uh, Sin is failure to meet the ideal that God has for humanity. Failure to meet his aim, falling short. Uh, Now, it's important to note that the standard that Paul talks about here is not the standard of the law of perfect grades. It's not the standard of the law of Victorian propriety. It's not the standard of the law of environmental care. It's not the standard of the law of inclusivity or tolerance or being open-minded or being true to yourself and authentic. All these laws and standards that we have in the modern Western world. Now, the standard that he is talking about is the Jewish law. The law that was given at Sinai by God with all its commandments, moral, civil, and ceremonial. That's what he is talking about. But here's the thing you have to understand. For Paul, the Jewish law 
is the best law. It's the law given by God. And if we can't be justified, we can't be deemed right by the works of that law, then these other standards that we erect, well, they won't be able to justify us either. And if we can't keep up to that law, to, or if we can't keep up to the other laws that we erect, like be environmental or be tolerant, then how do we think that we're going to keep up with God's standard, the standard of his perfect character and who he is? You see, if it doesn't work for the Jewish law, then it won't work for any other law or standard either. That's the point. But we all are trying to establish our worth through who we are and what we do. We're all still pursuing this righteousness, even though we don't quite measure up through good grades, through increasing our portfolio, through trying to be authentic, through serving other people. But what we find is that the, the higher we climb on the ladder, the longer the ladder seems to get. And we just can't reach the top. And it leads to this intense pressure that we know the standard yeah, we try to meet the standard, and we can't meet the standard. In the universe, at the University of Pennsylvania, there was a spat of suicides a couple years ago. And so they erected a task force to study them. And here's what the task force concluded, sadly, but reliably. The pressures engendered by the perception that one has to be perfect in every academic, co-curricular, and social endeavor can lead to stress, and in some cases, distress. In turn, distress can manifest as demoralization, alienation, or conditions like anxiety or depression. For some students, mental illness can lead to suicide. What's the task force concluding? That the pressures on the college campus, and not just academic pressures, social pressures, all kinds of pressures, are leading to lethargy, not getting out of the bed in the morning, demoralization because you just don't feel like you can do it. They're leading to isolation, not engaging in social activities because you don't think that you can measure up. They're leading to anxiety, this feeling that you always have to measure up, but you never can, and even killing people, leading to suicide. I, I once talked with a student who, uh, because they missed one class, got social anxiety about returning to class because they realized that they didn't measure up to the standard that they had set for themselves and the standard that they thought other people had, and they believed that every other person noticed, and so they didn't come. Social anxiety. And most of us think, well, what, what people need in that situation is they need a counselor. And that may be the case, but I would say deep down, what people in that situation need, what we all need, is righteousness. We need righteousness. And it's not just on the college campus, is it? 
It's dropping the kid off to school. It's walking into the office. It's it's looking in the mirror. It's all around. It's getting up and preaching. See, maybe this problem that 16th century medieval Catholics were burdened with, this problem of anxiety that burdened them, maybe it's just as relevant today for 21st century irreligious folks. Maybe we know what it's like to suffer under the burden of not measuring up to standards. Thou shalt be skinny. Thou shalt be healthy. Thou shalt be always put together along with your children. Thou shalt be laid back at the same time. (laughs) Thou shalt be successful. Thou shalt be unique. Man, I thought I was the only person with this tattoo. And then everyone else got it. And at first, I was doing No Shave November, and no one else was in the whole world, and then I move here, and everyone is. Thou shalt be present. Thou shalt have a successful career. Thou shalt be in a fulfilling relationship. See, irreligious secular laws can be just as demanding, if not more so, and just as demoralizing as religious laws. 20th century, the 21st century secular world can be just as judgmental, if not more so. Because at least with God's law, it's not a moving target. It doesn't change every day. Unlike what we see with fashion and health and everything else. For by the works of the law, Paul says, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So here's the problem. We need to be righteous, and we've pursued righteousness, but we just aren't righteous. So what do we do? Well, that leads us to God's provision of righteousness. In verse 21, Paul takes a turn. He says, but now, but now that Jesus has come, but now that God has sent his son, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. But now there is another way, another way for righteousness. And this other way, Paul says, is incredibly unique. It's unique in at least three respects. First, it's unique in that this righteousness is a gratuitous gift. Look at verse 24. Paul says, Since we have been justified, that is deemed to be right with respect to a standard. Since we have been justified by his grace as a gift. Now that's an interesting expression because did you know the word grace in the ancient world just meant gift? Uh, 
Everyone used that word all over, all the time. It was part of their economy. The way we talk about money, they talk about charis, gift, grace. So why does Paul say that we're justified by his grace as a gift? Because unlike most gifts, which have a reasonable explanation and fitting recipients, this gift does not. This gift is unreasonable, and its recipients are unfitting, because, verse 23, they have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, it's unreasonable and unfitting because God is declaring those who are unrighteous, God is deeming those who are unrighteous to be righteous. God is deeming those who do not measure up to have measured up. God is deeming those who are ungodly to be godly. And that just doesn't seem just, does it? I mean, in anywhere in the world, including the Old Testament, we all know that a just judge declares the innocent innocent, an innocent person innocent, and a guilty person guilty. And to do otherwise would be a serious miscarriage of justice. It's why we protest on the streets today. Because we know that that's wrong. And yet... Paul says that this God who justifies, who deems righteous the unrighteous, who justifies the ungodly, verse 26 says that he is nevertheless just. How can Paul do that? How can you say that the God who declares, who deems unrighteous people to be righteous, to have met a standard, how can you say that he is still just? Well, that brings us to the second unique characteristic about this righteousness. And that is that it's not simply a gratuitous gift, but it's also in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 24. We are justified, it says, deemed acceptable through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That this... This righteousness doesn't, isn't established by anything we are or anything we do. It's established by Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. And God can deem us righteous because we are in him. Because, verse 25, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, when Paul uses this word propitiation by his blood, he's just alluding to the fact that he believes that Jesus' death on the cross is a sacrifice that deals with sin and all its consequences. In other words, what Paul is saying is that this righteousness, it does not bypass justice. It enacts justice. And it's found in Christ. In Christ. Whoa. I can still do this. <laughs> that Jesus, who has so joined his life to yours, Jesus has so joined his life to yours that it means that all that he is and all that he has done becomes yours. Everything that he is and everything that he has done becomes yours. Yours. And all that we have and all that we are becomes His. 
our failure, our addictions, our selfishness and self-sabotage, our hypocrisy, our lies, even our social awkwardness and our neuroses. It all becomes his. All the ways in which we could never be enough or have enough or do enough, Jesus takes them all. It's like a marriage. When you get married, if your spouse had significant debts before the marriage, guess what? They become your debts. If your spouse had significant health problems, has significant health problems, and that causes problems with insurance, guess what? Those health problems and the problems with the insurance become yours. See, in marriage, everything that is your spouse's problem becomes your problem. It's all passed over. And Jesus has married us. Jesus has united his life to ours. And all of our debts, he takes them all on. Martin Luther put it this way. Christ took all our sins upon him. For them he died upon the cross. All the prophets did foresee in spirit that Christ should become the greatest transgressor, murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, blasphemer that there ever was. Our most merciful Father sent His only Son into the world and laid upon Him all the sins of all men, saying, Be thou Peter, that denier. Be thou Paul, that persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor. Be thou David, that adulterer. Be thou sinner, which did eat the apple in paradise. Be thou that thief, which hang upon the tree. And be thou Kyle. And be thou Anne, and be thou Matt, and be thou Joe. Everything that we are, everything that we have done, all our inadequacy, all our failure, he took it all on. But that's not all. In marriage, everything that we are goes to him. But all that, we have, all that he has comes to us. You see, if you get married, guess what? The wealth of your spouse comes to you. The trust accounts of your spouse comes to you. The, the social network that your spouse has comes to you. Your spouse's family ties are now your family ties. Their reputation comes to you. And it's the same way with Jesus. Every act of obedience becomes ours. Every success, every disposition and discourse that he ever made. Not only what he has done, but also what he is inclined towards doing. Not only his performance, but also his potential, his reward, his praise, his attractiveness, and his attraction to others. His very life, his very self is yours. Philip Melanchthon noted, I think very astutely, that God does not justify, that in God's justification, it's not that God approves a particular act or acts, but a whole person. And here's what that means. It means that 
We don't just get Jesus' record as I was taught in Sunday school. That is a very weak notion of imputation. We get Jesus' person and all that he is. That is who we have. Let me try to put it to you by analogy. You go to a very fancy dinner one night, just an analogy that I particularly resonate with, and you're at this, I like to eat, and you're at this, um, you're at this fancy dinner, and there are two chefs there. One is one of the top chefs in the world. The other is me. Uh, you drew the short straw, and I'm cooking your meal for you. I cook your meal for you, and it is brought out, and guess what? It is inedible, like literally inedible. That the, the, the meat is so done that there's, you can hardly chew it, right? Uh, the, the vegetables are all like flimsy or burnt, and not burnt in the good way, like burnt carrots, which are amazing, but burnt in like the bad oxidized way. Uh, and, um, and not only that, I didn't even pay attention to your dietary restrictions. And so this meal did not meet your standards in any way, shape, or form, and you reject it. Okay? So the top chef in the world then makes your meal. And it comes out. And every aspect of that meal is succulent. The meat is cooked just right. They took into account all your dietary restrictions, and that only enhanced the meal because it caused the chef to get more creative. Everything is perfect. And that is an acceptable meal. But here's the thing that you and I know about the chef. That chef, he's kind of a lousy guy. No one likes him. And he's, he's actually really cruel and mean. And, well, you would never want to be with him or spend, share a meal with him. But you think, hey, I don't have to. I'm not accepting him. I'm accepting the plate that he's put before me. I'm accepting his work, not his person in relationship. But you wouldn't accept him at the table. You might, you might reject the meal if it included him at the table with you, see, if you had to eat it with him. God does not just give you the meal that Jesus prepared. And God does not just accept you on the basis of the meal that Jesus prepared. God accepts you on the basis of Jesus. He is the righteous one. Everything he is, everything he has done, it's all yours. And so God deems people righteous not for anything you are or anything you do, but simply because of Jesus, who he is and what he has done. Which brings us to the third part of this righteousness. It's not simply that it's a gratuitous gift. It's not simply that it's a righteousness that, found, that is found in Jesus, but it is a righteousness which is outside of you. See, it's not through anything that is intrinsic to you or latent within you, any potential within you, that God deems you righteous. It is because of something outside of you, Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul keeps referencing this term, faith. 
He uses it throughout this passage. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 24, to be received by faith. Verse 26, God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Nine times Paul uses this word faith to make it absolutely clear that the disposition of those who are deemed righteous before God is a disposition of faith. Now, faith is probably the most misunderstood concept in Protestantism and the evangelical church today. Uh, J.I. Packer said that one, and J.I. Packer is a Protestant, J.I. Packer said that one of the most unhealthy features of Protestant theology today is its preoccupation with faith. Because today, when we use the term faith, we mean my personal commitment to God. And and we think, I just got to have more faith. Faith will get you through this. You just got to believe harder and be more committed. And, And it's all about who I am and what I do. But see, for the reformers, they would see that as another work. They would see that as another, the way we use faith today, they would say, that's justification by works. You're trying to be righteous, deemed righteous on the basis of your faith. On the basis of you just having enough faith and believing hard enough and doing enough. See, for them, faith had nothing to do with us. Faith is not subject-centered, it is object-centered. Faith is not psychological, it is theological. Faith is not about you and what you are and what you do and how hard and how much you're committed and how fervent you are for God. Faith is about who Jesus is and what He has done. That's what faith is. That's why Packer calls it aptly self-abandoning faith. See, faith is the acknowledgement of someone who realizes that nothing about them and nothing in them meets God's standard. Faith is therefore a negative quality. It's a a looking inside of yourself and saying, I can't look here anymore because there's nothing in me. It's the disposition of someone who recognizes that they are bankrupt of all worth and all value before the living God. Faith is the recognition and the acknowledgement that the standard has been met outside of you, for you. Faith is the recognition that everything that needs to be done has been done. And that there is nothing that needs to be done that hasn't been done already. That is faith. And it is incredibly humbling and freeing at one and the same time. It is incredibly humbling. Because Paul says, verse 20, by works of the law, and if it's by works of the Jewish law, then it's any other law or standard as well. No human being will be justified in his sight. Here's what that means. In its original context, it meant this. Your circumcision does not make you more righteous before God. Your keeping purity laws do not make you more righteous before God. Your Sabbath-keeping does not make you more righteous before God or acceptable to God. But if it meant that for Jews in their day, guess what? 
all the other standards that we try to live up to, it means that for us as well. It means that your bank account does not make you more acceptable to God. It means that your educational achievements and my educational achievements do not make us more acceptable to God. It means that our healthy marriage or lack of one does not make us more or less acceptable to God. It means that our obedient child or obedient children in church does not make us more or less acceptable to God. It means that your race and your birth certificate and your country of origin and your family of origin do not make you more or less acceptable to God. Your patriotism or lack thereof does not make you more or less acceptable to God. I'm going to keep going. Your social circle does not make you more or less acceptable to God. Your personality does not make you more or less acceptable to God. Your sense of humor does not make you more or less acceptable to God. Your work ethic does not make you more or less acceptable to God. Your moral pedigree does not make you more or less acceptable to God. And neither does your environmentalism, your church, or your church attendance. Nothing that you are and nothing that you do makes you more or less acceptable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be deemed acceptable in his sight. And it's incredibly humbling. It's incredibly humbling. And at the same time, it is incredibly liberating. It's the most liberating thing you will ever hear in your whole life. It's the most freeing thing that you will ever hear in your whole life. Because what it means is this. Justification by faith means this. Justification means that you are loved. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Justification means that you are forgiven. Romans 4, 7 and 8, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. Justification means that God is not angry with you. God is not angry with you for failing to measure up. Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. Justification means that you can live in peace, and not anxiety. Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification by faith means that you are secure. Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And justification by faith means that you can rest and you can rejoice. Romans 5.2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And justification by faith means that you can have all of these things right now, just the way you are, because of the way He is. And that is liberating. That is good news. That is good news for those who realize that they cannot meet the standard. You know, in gymnastics, you can get a perfect 10, but only one person has ever done it. Nadia Kamenetsky in the 76 Montreal Olympics got a 10 out of 10. Only one person ever met the standard completely. Jesus got a 10 out of 10. Not just what he did, but who he is.
everything about him. And God deemed him right. God deemed his life acceptable. And if you trust in him, then his is yours. You are in him. So I've got good news for you this morning. You cannot do enough or be enough or have enough. And I've got the greatest news for you this morning. Jesus, he is enough. He is enough for you and for me. Rest in him. Amen.